This episode, stories of perseverance in the face of a pandemic. Let's start in-house at NPR. I remember the moment. It was one plant that I <laughs> that I saw while leaving the office. Um, and so I walked past newscast on my way out, and there was a single plant that was, you know, on its way out, shall we say. This is Bo Hamby. Uh, I'm Bo Hamby. Uh, I'm a producer at Morning Edition and Up First. And for the last two months or so, Bo has been in and out of NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C. He's on these two-week rotations. And it's been a little lonely. You walk in and you're used to seeing 300 people, and I walked in and saw six, maybe. Um, How did that feel, that first moment? Like, what was your first— It was bizarre. It was totally bizarre. Then one day, on his way out of the office, Bo noticed something small. And it reminded him of what life used to be like in the office. Before the pandemic, before most of the office got sent home. Yep. It was an office plant. It's a sad thought. Well, a dying office plant. You know, just the sort of thought struck me. Most people did not have enough notice to be like, okay, I'm going to take all of my plants home. It was grab your laptop and whatever else you need to get work done and go. And so at the time, I had only seen this one plant, and I just sort of mentally flagged it and then kept going. And in the elevator, I was like, it would be great to sort of go around the building and see what else is happening. So the next day, Bo walked around the office and took a photo of the plant on crutches. And then he took a photo of another plant and then another plant. And he posted a few of them in a thread on Twitter as a tribute. I basically knew that I would not be able to water the plants because you can't use crutches and hold a pitcher of water or even a bottle of water. It just doesn't work. So So you were just going to be there to, like, mark the passing of these plants. Yeah, exactly. It's, like, sort of a journalistic joke that we are, you know, merely observers and we can never step in to help, you know? That's not our job. Um, (laughs) And so I sort of took that to an extreme. Yeah. What is the reaction online of this montage of dead or dying plants? The original sort of reaction was, why aren't you watering them, you monster? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because I was there. But the second was just like a, wow, like I did not think this would make me that sad. But it made people think about what their office life had been like and what they missed about it and just like sort of the new reality that this had forced them into, right? Like this was a weird reminder of like the time before. And, And also like it's a reminder that offices have life. Yeah. Like plants is this really big symbol, but like there's a certain life you live around your colleagues in the office that we're all missing. And like it is important. Yeah. When we're not there, it goes away. Right. I mean, that's a very simple sort of equation. But, uh, you know, there are things that we miss and that there are things that we'll lose because we're not there. Yeah. Even if the show goes on, even if the work is still done from home, even if the show is still on the air. Even if it sounds like everything is fine and the news is still on and you still wake up at five in the morning and you hear our voices, things might not always be perfect behind the scenes. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. We are calling this episode, The Show Must Go On. Coming up, you're going to hear a few more stories like Bo Hamby's. Stories about people whose lives and jobs couldn't just stop because coronavirus hit. Stories about what you can hold on to and what you've got to let go when a pandemic changes everything. Because even if you try to power through, no matter what, everyone right now is going to lose something. We'll hear from a healthcare worker who has no choice but to keep working, even as the risks of her job keep mounting. And then a field organizer 
who all of a sudden had to take door knocking and neighborhood canvassing online. And finally, we'll hear from an international student who lost her job and her home when her college shut down because of the pandemic. She'll tell us why she chose to stay in the U.S. and keep going to school, no matter what. All of that after the break. But first, thanks again to Bo Hamby, my NPR colleague in D.C. He told me there's talk of organizing some kind of watering schedule for those plants at NPR headquarters. I hope this happens. I hope those plants survive. Okay, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor StoryPoint Wines, maker of StoryPoint, a bold new wine brand with a rich, layered taste profile. Enjoy StoryPoint wine while you connect with those you love, either at home or at a virtual happy hour. Raise a glass and share a story. StoryPoint believes that the stories we share can bring joy even in trying times. Visit storypointvineyards.com minute to purchase. Shipping is included in your online order, so consider shipping a bottle to a friend, too. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com minute to learn more and get 10% off your first month. Face masks have become the new normal as we continue to grapple with the ongoing pandemic. But when did we start wearing masks for our health and safety? This week on Throughline the origins of the N95 mask, and how it became the life-saving tool it is today. Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present. All right, let's get to it. First, Irene Hunt. She has a hard job. I'm an in-home caregiver. She is based in the Pacific Northwest. Eugene Springfield area of Oregon. This is her usual routine with one of those people she cares for. He's an amputee, and... This particular client, I have to change him, uh, clean him, and help him get out of his bed. Irene says some days are harder than others. If he's had a serious accident, um, I have to try and get him in the shower. (laughs) If Irene doesn't see her patients, things could get really bad really quickly. I have a client who has no family, no kids, no nothing. He can barely walk. He probably still shouldn't be living at home, but he is. I'm his only source for anything. You got to be there. Yeah. Yeah. So she's kept going to work, even as coronavirus has sent so many other people home. And since the pandemic hit, Irene says her job has gotten a lot harder. Older caregivers at her company have tapped out of work because they're high risk. So Irene has taken on some of their work. She has 10 clients now instead of eight. On top of that, Irene has begun to reuse masks because her company isn't giving her enough for her caseload. So Irene has this elaborate setup in her car to keep everything sorted from patient to patient. I have eight paper bags in my car labeled. So luckily I have a big rig. I don't know how people are doing it with their small car if they have tons of clients. The used masks go back in the right baggie after each house, labeled and dated, to be reused next visit. And Irene's routine for entering and exiting her patients' homes, that is also more intense now. 
I feel like I'm suiting up for war. I put my my booties on, I put my mask on, um, I have some Lysol wipes and I have hand sanitizer in my front seat. And I Lysol and hand sanitize in between clients. And at the end of those days, after the baggies, after the booties, after the Lysol wipes, Irene has another intricate process to endure before she'll even enter her own home. I feel defeated and exhausted every day. When the pandemic became a big deal in this country, did you ever consider stopping seeing your patients? I did, um, only because I have a seven-year-old daughter. And when the schools closed down, that really affected me and my home because... Yeah, who's going to keep your kid? Yeah. Yeah. And so my mother-in-law, who's 70, she would watch her part-time, and uh, I would pay a church daycare for the other time, and she was laid off, Mm -hmm. but she's 70, and she's a high risk, and I just dropped her off one day, and I broke down crying and and said, I I can't come back and get her because I have to keep you guys safe. Wow. So how long has it been since you've last been close to your daughter? Well, we do the social distancing on the weekends. But it's not the same. But when's the last time you touched her? Oh, almost two months ago. (sighs) Irene, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you're having to deal with all of this. I mean, to hear you talk about it so calmly, it's a lot. If I don't, I will just break down and I have my moments. What do you do in your moments? Try to kill my husband. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but seriously, though, like, how do you manage your stress right now? What can you do to feel better when you're feeling really down? What is your routine? Um, I personally have gotten some help. I talked to, um, it's called a Stephen Minister, and they do grief and loss counseling for free. And it just has helped me with stuff, you know, because as caregivers, not only do we deal with a lot of loss and grief from our clients, but then we also have personal life stuff. And you pile that on top. It's a very emotional, draining job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, because a lot of the work that you're doing when you're going in folks' houses to care for them is you're their counselor. You're the person talking with them about how their day went. You're the one helping them deal with their emotional flare-ups. You know, I mean, so my mother has been pretty much bedridden for, gosh, 18 years. And at times I took care of her. At times other family did. But there were nurses and aides coming in all the time. And the thing that no one ever gets until they have to do this work is like, it's like several jobs wrapped up in one. You're their doctor, you're their nurse, you're their counselor, you're their friend, you're their house manager because you're sometimes balancing their checkbook and getting their groceries. It's like seven jobs wrapped up in one. And the thing about caring for folks with needs like that is that they get stressed in these moments too. So a lot of times these folks that you love and you care for, they're a little crabbier than usual in moments like this. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. I'm guessing the mood of your patients has gotten worse as well. Yes, the particular one that I was talking about that doesn't have any family, I see him rapidly getting into a very serious, deep depression. And then I have a lot of clients who are just scared. And they, I have one client, she asks me every time, so anybody you know 
Are they sick? Oh, yeah. It's not really because she's wondering. She's scared. <laughs> so she's yeah. quizzing me, which Justifiably is fine. So. Yeah, which is fine. I don't blame her. I, I, I think the thing that scares me right now the most, and I just don't understand why us caregivers don't have sick pay. There's so many caregivers mm. that don't have any sick pay. And... Mm. So what are we supposed to do? Go take a day without pay or or choose to go to work sick and then get our clients sick and be responsible for that. That's horrible. I personally, because I have a union, have a little bit of sick pay, but I'm a mom and I've used quite a bit of that already. So I don't have anything banked. So if I get sick because of COVID, I'm screwed. Mm. I want to ask about finances for a second. I take it you're taking on more hours during this time, but you're also, it sounds like, having to pay out of pocket for a lot of the supplies you need. Are you even making more money right now or is you're working a lot harder? No. No, I'm not. Mm. Are you losing money compared to before? I'd say so. Mostly because I'm trying to buy supplies and I go and get my client's toilet paper on my own time. Mm. And that's you walking into a high-risk environment, a grocery store. Mm-hmm. Wow. For people not having to do this work right now and not seeing what goes into doing what you do right now, what would you want to say to them? Particularly as everyone across the country is figuring out how much to reopen the economy and what to do next. Um, that we are healthcare professionals and we work extremely hard and we are forgotten regularly and caregivers should be at least making at least $15 an hour and get hazard pay for what we're doing. We're like literally frontline, but then some, because we are the ones that actually go into the home and realize that our client has a fever. Mm-hmm. All the first responders. Right. Do you think our society values folks like you enough? No. What would change that? I don't think people realize that we are all of those things that you said before. We are the doctor. We are the nurse. We are their counselor. We are their confidant. We are their friend. We are there when they die. So the biggest thing is how are you going to want to be treated when you are older? Mm. And the person taking care of you cares and loves you that much. Wouldn't you want to care and love them too? Mm. So. Yeah. You have such a powerful story, and I just am in awe of your strength and tenacity in the face of such a difficult situation. And I pray that you're able to hug your daughter soon, because I think that would be really nice. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to caregiver Irene Hunt. And now, a story about a type of work that has been totally remade in the face of the pandemic. Megan, hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Where are you? Um, I'm currently in Miami, Florida. This is Megan Romero. She's a regional field organizer in Florida for a political advocacy group called Organizing 2020. This job is still pretty new for Megan. 
Just a few months ago, she was working on the presidential campaign of Pete Buttigieg. Um, before this, a day in the life in January, um, what my day would have looked like is uh, door knocking throughout the day, um, come back by 5 p.m., make phone calls through 9. Um, Typical field campaign stuff. Lots of face-to-face meetings, lots of knocking on people's doors. For a door knocking day, we're looking around 40 doors uh, per person. Wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Can you just give me the start of what you would say to folks when you would have a door opened? Oh yeah, I've got the spiel down still. <laughs> um, so they would open the door and you just uh, confirm that it's them. So like, hi, is this uh, Julie, for example? They'll say yes. And they'll be like, hi, my name is Megan. Um, I'm with, let's say, Organizing Together 2020. Um, how are you doing today? You've got it down like scripture. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and I can just like alter it uh, per campaign. Uh, so Before she even began this new job with Organizing 2020, Megan was driving down to Florida to quarantine with her family. And while she was driving, she was thinking about how she had absolutely no idea how all this was going to work. And it was just kind of like a really big, like, internal conversation of me being like, well, what do we do if we can't canvas? Yeah. Like, what, do we, what are our goals going to look like? Um, who are we going to talk yeah. to? How are we going to get What was your people? first answer to that question? Probably just, like, a lot of phone calls. Um, I was really concerned with how one-on-ones were going to look. Yeah. Like, do we just get everybody to make sure that they have access to Google Hangout? Um, My grandparents and FaceTime is enough for me. (laughs) Um, I can only imagine. Yeah. So you get down to Florida. You're in your parents' house. But you have to figure out how to be a field organizer, a door knocker, a phone caller, uh, while social distancing and being stuck in your parents' place. What did you figure out, and what does your average day of work look like now? Um, yeah, well, um, I actually, so I'm the original organizing director, so I'm in charge of about 11 organizers. Um, so I definitely had to get, like, a good grasp of on how to set up Zoom, and mm-hmm. it's really basic stuff that we really wouldn't have had to deal with before. So you're kind of tech support now as well. A lot of tech support, like a surprising amount. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, like... How, what percentage of your workday now is just that, the tech oh, stuff? Oh, oof, easily. Um, I'd say around like 90%. 90? Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I got used to it. Um, I guess my biggest question, because it's like I have friends that have organized before, and I just remember the stories of them talking about the knocking on so many doors, the knocking on so many doors. And it was the most taxing part of it, but they also ended up loving it the most. How in the world now do you replace the knocking on someone's door without knocking on someone's door? What does that look like in quarantine? It's a lot of um, just direct contact. Try to like make up for face-to-face whenever you can. So is it just phone calling now, like phone banking? No, actually. So um, a lot of what's really, really effective about door knocking is uh, the face-to-face interaction. Um, So just making sure that we can get people set up on Hangout, FaceTime, Zoom as much as humanly possible, Um, whether that's like uh, Zoom-wide calls with a group of volunteers, whether that's like just one-on-one conversations. We just try to get people to have that face-to-face as soon as possible. It makes it easier to have those human connections and kind of like realize like, oh, I am interacting with a person. Um, One of the things I... I'm wondering a lot about is who is left out when this kind of outreach moves online. There are a lot of folks who are not tech savvy. There are a lot of folks who don't have reliable internet. There are a lot of folks who just aren't internet first. What happens to those folks in this kind of environment? 
Yeah, um, something that we really like to push, um, something that I am constantly telling to my team is meet people where they're at. Um, so for example, um, just anecdotally, one of my organizers ended up making a call and the woman really wanted to come to our event, which is tonight. And she really wanted to sign up, but she doesn't have access to a computer. She doesn't really know how to use it. Mm -hmm. Um, She was so excited. She just ended up like giving her her daughter's phone number on site. Um, So the organizer (laughs) just put it on pause, called the daughter. She was like, hey, like, you don't know me, but this is my name. I just spoke to your mom and she gave me your number. I'm with this organization. I promise I'm not sketchy. Just like, this is what I want to set her up for. And just like really explaining to her what was happening. And the daughter was all here for it. um, And she helped her set up um, and they both ended up signing up for the event. Um, So just kind of like situations like that, making sure that um, everyone feels useful, kind of asking them who it is that they know who'd like to get involved. Yeah. When and if you are able to get back out there and knock on a door again, what will be the first thing you say to the first person that opens a door? Oh, wow. Aside from like trying to fight back tears of joy. um, Um, probably like, uh, just be really grateful that they opened the door. Um, um, hi. Yeah. Like just kind of like give them the whole spiel. Um, full enthusiasm. Yeah. Just making sure they feel the energy that I do. Just making sure that they feel like the energy, like just being like, I'm really excited to be here. I like it. Let's go with it. Yeah. Feel the energy. I want all of us to feel the energy. Um, this was an energizing conversation, Megan. Seriously. I liked it a lot. This was fun. Oh, awesome. I had a lot of fun too. Thanks again to Megan Romero. She's a regional field organizer with the group Organizing 2020. Okay, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Sticks and stones might break your bones, but during this pandemic, hateful words could actually kill you. This is dangerous at a level which we haven't seen, I think, in in generations. This is painting a target on millions of Americans. Your questions about race and COVID, next time on Code Switch from NPR. For many of us in this pandemic, we only lost one or maybe two big things. Lost a job, lost some money, lost going into the office, lost being physically close to loved ones. But if you're an international student right now, in the last few weeks, you probably lost all of those things all at once. Like the last two weeks were the most hard weeks that I ever had at college, to be honest with you, um, emotionally, physically, mentally. Marta Tejeda Montez just graduated from Wiley College in Texas. She's from Juarez, Mexico, right on the border next to El Paso. She's gone to schools in the U.S. since middle school, and she's planning to go to grad school at Texas Tech this fall. So I'm kind of a Texas girl, if if I can say that. (laughs) Colleges across the country have closed their dorms because of the pandemic. Some have made exceptions for students who had nowhere to go, but not Martha's College. Like many international students in the U.S. right now, she is without a permanent address, and she's not allowed to work, even if she could find a job. And her family, they're in a different country. It was really draining and um, really exhausting just thinking about what, what was my next step. And, you know, being an international student, it's hard. But with the financial situation that I, um, that I have, you know, my family cannot afford to, you know, send me a lot of money or provide, you know, with like airplane, with an airplane ticket or something like that. So it was really hard 
Yeah. So what did you do after they said you got to go? Were you living on campus and had to go somewhere else? Yes, I cried. I oh felt stressed. Um, you know, and I'm a really emotional and I'm a really sensitive person sometimes. Yeah. And that's how I... It's allowed. Let it out. Yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, finding a place to stay, I met a girl that used to work at Wiley. And, you know, I think it was meant to be because a week before everything happened, that's when I met her. And then we got along really well since the beginning. So I was telling her, hey, do you know a place where I can stay? Because the school was not giving us any help regarding housing. So mm. for me, like I told you, I, I could not afford to rent, even if you share the rent with, um, with some of my friends. I just couldn't. So I told her that, and she told me that I could stay in her house right away. So that was my home for the past month, and now I had to move out. Um, Where'd you go after that? I'm with a friend and her sister and her two sons, so in a small apartment. That's a lot of people. I will say hearing this, Texans are good people. They're yeah. big-hearted. How are you doing with money? You lost your campus job. Yeah. Um, well, thank God, because we got one, the check, like the government check, like the stimulus check. Uh, oh, because good. even though we're international students, we still have, we're like in the system. And then okay. our school pay off the rest of our money. Oh, so the, so the school paid out the rest of what would be your wages for the rest of the semester? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so that was... And so, if you don't mind me asking, mm-hmm. what did that total up to? Um, it was 700 Plus the stimulus check. How much was that? It was 1000 1200 I think. Okay. So you've been living off of a little less than two grand for how long now? For two, like one month like or something, like right oh, after... Man. But the thing is that um, I'm trying not to spend a lot of money because right now I got accepted into grad school, thank God, but I don't have any scholarships right now. I mean, I do have one small one, but I'm just saving in case I need to pay for something myself. Yeah. Uh, So you're still planning to go to grad school this fall? Oh, yes, I am. You know? Had you ever thought about just saying, this is too much, life is crazy, I'm going to go back home? To mom's yeah. house no, across that was, the border. That was me Saturday, to be honest, when I was telling my mom, you know what, I'm I'm not going to make it. You know, I feel like I, I want to give up and I just want to go home. Mm. And Yeah. But, you know, yeah. I just, something keeps me pushing and that's just like my education or give back to my parents or do something. Yeah. So on that call with your mother this past Saturday, what did she say to you? You know, she just told me, like stay calm and my mom she's like my best friend so if anything she says it's good for my soul <laughs> so she was just saying, uh-huh, uh-huh. just hang out there uh we're gonna make it you're really strong and i am really strong and i'm really mature and i want people to know that mexican people can be good and that mexico is more than what meets the eye and mm. you know be an example yeah i want to ask you some more about money Yes. You said that you got a little bit of a payout from your college before they closed campus and a little mm-hmm. bit of a stimulus check from the federal government. Once that runs out, what happens? You can't work right now. You were talking about saving for grad school. How can you save? And when you spend down the money you have now, where will the next amount of money come from? Come from um, right now, I don't know. I'm just trying to, you know, money... I never grew up with money. I never grew up mm. feeling how it felt to, um, you know, having the newest everything. So for me, mm. I've been stuck in the United States for 10 years of my life now, I want to say. Mm-hmm. So money has never been an obstacle for me to get educated. It has never stopped me. I think that's something that keeps me going is mm. going against all odds, you know. 
Yeah. All, all your okay. Mexican, all your international students. It's really hard and you're not going to get a job. I don't care about that. Yeah. My mind is just set on grad school and giving back to my family and that made me really strong and that's what keeps me it going. sounds like it it sounds like it so then it seems like all of your life has gotten really really different in the last few weeks have some things stayed the same do some things still feel familiar are there bits of routine that you've been able to hold on to just nothing really i think everything changed <laughs> okay <laughs> okay i mean i don't have a routine now you know, but it's good because I don't want to get used to something and then feeling like that's how my day should be, you know. So I'm just open to whatever uh, life throws at me, you know. And most of all, be grateful for every day because I know there's people that have it way harder than me. And, you know, people are dying. And if you really think about it, my problems are not compared to what someone in a hospital is feeling mm. or, you know, a how a doctor is feeling. There's nothing compared. Like my pain. It's my mm. pain and I'm going to feel it, but I'm not going to diminish what I'm feeling. But I know there's people that have it worse than I, than I do. How old are you now? I'm 23. 23. Yes. I tell you what, you've got a bright future ahead of you. Thank you. It's, it's rare you meet someone your age with this kind of perspective. It's, I'm, I'm serious. You should be proud of yourself and how well you're handling this. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much. I, yeah. There's probably going to be a lot of people hearing this episode who want to stop because they're tired. They're tired of the struggle right now. They're tired of everything being so weird mm -hmm. to people that are considering giving up on whatever. Yeah. In this strange moment of coronavirus, mm -hmm. what advice would you give to them? What would you say to them to keep them going? You know, just be grateful, wake up every day with a grateful heart and everything you're going through right now is going to pay off. And then it may not seem like that, you will feel like you want to give up and it's okay to embrace what you're feeling. And as long as you hug those feelings and you say to yourself, okay, mm. this is what I'm feeling, you can move on and try to do better every day. So just be strong and most of all, be kind to people. You know, we don't, we don't know what we're going through in our minds. You know, there's people that are dealing with mental problems. There, there's a lot of things going through everyone's mind and life yeah. so just be kind yeah. to everyone and you'll see the difference oh my goodness i'm gonna need you to start a podcast so i can listen to it <laughs> that's what i want i want to hear you giving me inspirational thoughts all the time i love this yeah. so much yeah i think just that's what i say be grateful be humble be kind be grateful be humble be kind yeah Thanks again to Marta Tejeda Montes. She just finished at Wiley College in Texas, and her plans are to go to grad school at Texas Tech this fall. Marta, we wish you the best. All right, after all these stories of perseverance, we want to make some time for a few of yours. Every week, we hear y'all sharing the best parts of your week and how you are finding joy and continuing to live your lives in the midst of all this. We're going to do it again this week with our listeners sharing the best parts of their week. Let's listen. Hey, Sam, this is Katie. I am a second grade teacher in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. And the best part of my week, um, maybe month, quite possibly 2020 so far, was when my students and families did a car parade past my house. They honked, they hung out of their cars, and seeing their smiling faces in real life and not through a computer screen was just the best. Hi Sam, this is Virginia from Richmond, Virginia. The best thing that happened to me this week is that I turned in my final two assignments for undergrad. 
I am almost officially graduated. Hi, Sam. This is Emily in Denver, Colorado. The best part of my week is that I passed my PhD candidacy exam. My son Shane graduated from Keene State College with his degree in computer science. Hi, Sam. The best thing that happened to me this week was my niece Kyan's first birthday. We got on Zoom and were able to wish her a happy birthday from Vermont, Washington State, Texas, North Carolina, all over the country. Hey, Sam, this is Gray in Austin. And uh, the best thing that's happened this week is our house has been taken over by Killer Queen. Uh, My son is 18. He plays French horn and is into classical music, but recently discovered a video of uh, some famous horn player playing the guitar solo for Killer Queen on French horn. So he decided that he was going to learn it on French horn too. And so we've been hearing uh, the guitar solo for Killer Queen so many times. Which is kind of awesome because now everybody's walking around the house singing Killer Queen. All right, Sam. Have a great week. Thank you so much. Love the show. Thanks for letting me share. Have a good one. Thanks so much to those listeners. Gray, Joe, Judy, Emily, Virginia, and Katie. To all y'all out there listening, you can be part of this segment as well. At any point throughout any week, share the best part of your week with me. Just record yourself, audio or video, and send those files to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. This week, the show was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, Andrea Gutierrez, and Hafsa Fatima. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.